Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vinitali International Academy, announcing the 24th of our Italian Wine Ambassador courses to be held in London, Austria, and Hong Kong from the 27th to the 29th of July. Are you up for the challenge of this demanding course? Do you want to be the next Italian Wine Ambassador? Learn more and apply now at vinitaliinternational.com. Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. In this episode, we are joined by Sean Spratt, owner and winemaker at Destiny Bay, New Zealand's only luxury wine brand. Today, we talk about the 20-plus year family journey that went from maybe making some wine in the garage to recently becoming the only New Zealand wine to be listed on the Place de Bordeaux. We touch upon everything from building a quiet brand to balancing exclusivity to the impact of climate change. Let's get into it. Sean Spratt, you get to fill one of my, my New Zealand blocks. I get so few opportunities to interview New Zealanders. And I've used this as a chance to get you on the podcast. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Well, it's it's a pleasure. I'm, uh, you know, as, a, as, a, as an expat Kiwi, I'm glad I still filled that criteria. So... I know. I, I do think that's funny. We've got two kiwi, Kiwis in the room and nary an accent between us. No, um, that is right. No. And so you are the owner and winemaker uh, for at of Destiny Bay. And I was thinking about how to describe that because I've known you for so long um, that sometimes I forget Destiny Bay is New Zealand's only super premium wine brand. Is that true? Is there anyone uh, else who falls into that category? I, yeah, I mean, there's there are a lot of people now that are are starting to move into that space. Certainly, when we started this out, gosh, twenty years ago, we were like there was nobody even really close to what we were sort of doing in terms of uh, aspiration for the market that we we're trying to go into as a you know true sort of luxury wine brand. Um, now we've got some people that are coming up close to it, and and a lot of people have sort of. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to think that maybe we, you know, helped, you know, maybe break a few ceilings along with that. But I think it's also probably, a, you know, a lot of it's, the, you know, the industry at large, too. Uh, I do, as far as I know, we are still the uh, in the pole position in terms of, of price leading. And as a Cabernet blend specialist, um, yeah, you know, certainly with some of the recent um, reviews and, and critic scores and winery winery of the year, we, we do seem to, to have the, uh, the street cred to back that up a little bit. Right. And I, I, I do want to talk about that, some of those reviews, but just for everyone listening, can you tell us a little bit about Destiny Bay? I know that, um, I, you know, I know that the world doesn't know New Zealand as well as you and I do. Yeah. Um, well, it wasn't, you know, this wasn't a project where we came here. Uh, it's a family venture. So it's uh, my mother uh, and father, Anna Mike, and I started this. Uh, well, the first vines went in the ground in 2000, but we didn't come here with this uh, express purpose or goal of 
starting, you know, a, a vineyard, let alone a Cabernet blend specialist vineyard on an island called Waihiki and, you know, in the sort of lower part of the South Pacific. Um, it, like so many other, you know, expats that live in this country, and, and I'm sure you're, you're in the same box, you know, we, uh, my parents came to visit New Zealand uh, and fell in love with it from, you know, very different careers than the wine industry. Mike, my father was a psychologist, but a uh, merger and acquisition specialist, and and did a lot of you know marketing and brand development stuff, and and along the way with that. And my mother was a microbiologist and chemist and and science, but had worked sort of professionally in the uh, in the technology sector. Um, and it was on that trip where I visited with them that uh, you know they'd done their first trip, I should say, and fell in love with it. By the time they came back, uh, they were so depressed to go back to America that they started planning their next trip a year later. And I, I knew immediately when they had come back that they were going to move here, even though they say they did not know. Um, but that trip a year later then turned into a let's expatriate and go, you know, find a place to live in New Zealand. And I tagged along for the ride just as a, a sanity check, I think, to make sure that uh, they weren't doing something completely crazy. And hey, a free plane ticket's a free plane ticket. So, um, and it was on that trip at the end of it that we stumbled across Waiheke Island at the end. And then as the course of a sort of another year went along, they went to look for, um, you know, a place that they want some property and, and, you know, with the hope to, to, you know, build sort of the dream home. And they found a, a section and then there was this beautiful bowl shaped amphitheater, um, with some land for sale and cattle grazing on it. And, uh, uh, my mother sort of said those fateful words as they were looking at the one property and said, well, well, we could buy this one and it's got a nice view and we'll build a house on it. And, and geez, all that land over there is, you know, looks, looks sort of interesting and pretty affordable. You know, land's always a good investment. That's not, that's not something you'll hear about Waiheke anymore. Those words, that land <laughs> yeah, over yeah. there is pretty and looks affordable. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was. And at that time you would, uh, at that time it was, and, and you certainly wouldn't be buying the land at the prices now to, to plant grapes on it. Um, unless you just had more money than you could possibly imagine. Um, and so, and then she sort of said those faithful words and said, oh, well, that looks like there's some good wines on the island. Maybe we could uh, put a couple of vines in the backyard and make some wine in the garage. And, you know, lo and behold, 20 years later, we're in a, in a very different position. And that, that was largely driven by the fact that when we started to look at it from a viticultural perspective, and we looked back to the wines that inspired us and uh in california namely ridge um you know we had some we had a, a very close friend of the family who was involved with mandavi and uh the mandavi family and their ventures in chile um when they had gotten into there years ago and uh and then talked with some you know viticulturists and came back and found out that this wasn't just a good place to grow grapes but a fantastic place to grow grapes and cabernet in particular and so that's when we sort of saw we had this opportunity to do something, you know, not just to make a wine, but but perhaps to make something that was really, really special. And that that was really what was appealing is not to just start another vineyard and winery, um, but to, you know, really sort of shoot for the stars and uh, have the potential to do it. And so in that sense, we sort of felt like the vineyard kind of picked us more than we picked it, you know, as, as cliche as that might sound. Um, but it wasn't this, yeah, it wasn't this sort of, you know, set out, let's go to New Zealand, let's find the perfect place to grow Cabernet and, and whatnot. It was, the evolution of it was was much more organic than that. It, it wasn't the tech bros who made their money and, and were like, hey, we're moving north, we're buying the lifestyle property kind of thing. Um, one of the things that I love about the story, though, having met your family, 
is that your mom, I mean, you became a winemaker, you studied at UC Davis. I'm not dismissing the importance of you and your dad, but your mom, who was a scientist, actually became, was it, it was the viticulturalist. Is that right? She did a UC Davis degree and yeah, was so, formative. Yeah. So what we did is we did the yeah. distance learning um, through UC Davis's extension program. That's sort of where we started. Uh, and then when we were here and a couple of years into it, sort of the early phase, I think it was probably 2007, 2008, um, I was sort of interested in, in perhaps, and, and I had a little more bandwidth back then because we hadn't fully ramped up. And so I had actually started talking with uh, Auckland University's uh, uh, wine science program at the time, and I was considering enrolling there as an MFA, or not MFA, sorry, a master's program. And um I looked at it and I kind of wasn't really that interested in the degree. I was kind of interested in going in and trying to audit courses and 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 kind of pick up a few things along the way. They caught on to for that. the sake of learning. Yeah, they caught on to that pretty quick and weren't too keen on that because they make all their money on graduates and people who publish. Um, and I said, all right, well, look, I'm not going to do that. My mother said, well, geez, actually, that sounds kind of fun. And so at, you know, getting close to, you know, what she was, she must have been on 60 years old, I guess, at that point, uh, enrolled as a master's student at uh, Auckland University and then proceeded to go through there for another three years and get her um, her master's um, in wine science. And we did a few research projects and those were published um, in some journal, industry journal articles. And uh, yeah, so she's she's where I got my um, my sort of science, you know, rooting in science. Uh, when I was, you know, in grade school, she would... Uh, make me watch, you know, PBS science programs like uh, Cosmos with Carl Sagan back in the day. And then she wouldn't let me go to sleep at night unless I passed her quiz of all the science stuff. So I was this kid who was like in third grade, begging my mother to go to sleep at the end of night, uh, because I didn't want to talk about Copernican theory or Galileo's, you know, uh, law, you know, uh, theories as well. Um, so yeah. And yet, and yet a dinner with you talking about the vineyard, is full of science talk nowadays. I mean, I know you have some tech investments that are very interesting that maybe we can get to in the winery, but you are, you have absolutely embraced that in your winemaking. Would you consider yourself, I mean, do we use the language of precision winemaking is, you know, we use precision in other kinds of work. Do, do we ever talk about that in wine? Um, yeah. I mean, it's a funny thing to talk about, I think in wine, because wine is this you know, organic process. And, and, you know, it's like trying to, you know, trying to control, you can't control everything, right? It's, it's trying to capture lightning and put it in a bottle. It just can't be done. Um, so yeah, we are very precision oriented in terms of what we do, but I think the way that the philosophy that's sort of evolved with this, and this sort of started back when I was talking with uh, Eric Baher, the senior winemaker at Ridge, about what he does, and and the people at Opus One, and 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 a whole handful of wineries that I went kind of touring around and and trying to you know cage different winemakers and and pin them down and start asking them questions. And and the one thing that kind of came up was that uh, you know it, a lot of I, I didn't ask the question of you know uh, we're starting a vineyard and winery. What should we do? I started asking the question of I'm starting a vineyard and winery. What shouldn't I do? Uh, and aside from the obligatory joke about well, don't start a winery, um, you get very very specific questions about winemaking and things like that. People always remember the things that went wrong as opposed to all the little victories, and that really shaped uh, shaped our 
sort of ethos and philosophy, which is that, uh, you know, as we know, all you know, great wines are made in the vineyard, not in the winery. Um, and trying to, and a lot of good winemaking is making sure that you don't make bad wine. And so what we've really focused on is how do we take all of those things and eliminate them and sort of ring take because we've got this great vineyard site where we're getting great expression from the vines, from the terroir. And we really want to preserve that and capture that in the bottle. And so the idea is to kind of ring fence that, make sure we guard band and protect all the other things that can get in the way from that and cause problems. And that's, and that's where you do get very precise and very technical. Like, how are you sorting? What are we doing in terms of field management? When do you do your fruit thinning or green harvesting? Um, and, you know, what do you do when you're inside the winery? So hopefully what we can do is kind of get out of the way. So if you do all that sort of stuff up front, um, then hopefully the wines are going to, you know, the, the grapes are going to do what they want to do and, and speak for themselves. And you aren't going to have to intervene much actually as a winemaker. So uh, that's sort of where, you know, we kind of call ourselves uh, interventionist, non-intervention winemakers. We don't want to, right. we don't want to get into it, stuck in the middle of it when there's a problem later. We want to get out in front of it and then stand back and let it coast all the way to the bottle. Right, right. Very interesting. I, I do want to come back to that. I want to ask some questions about the brand though, because um, in some sense, I feel like you and I have grown gray together, you know, like I, I've known you for so long. And one of the things about Destiny Bay is you're what I would call either a quiet luxury or nowadays we've started using the word a coded luxury brand. So um, what that, you know, what that means is there are so many examples in fashion. We've got brands who they're like the secret handshake. You don't know unless you know that that is a very fabulous brand. They're brands who don't invest in marketing very much. They're brands who sort of allow their reputation to grow organically. Would you say that that's a fair assessment for Destiny Bay? Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think you're sort of talking about, uh, you know, like Gaia or something like that, right? Where, you know, Gaia is a really good example, you know, where yeah. obviously they would be sort of the, the dream pinnacle example. Uh, and, you know, uh, but that of course, you know, took, you know, a little bit of luck and a lot of timing and, and to get to where they were too. Um, yeah, I, I do think that I, I haven't actually heard the term coded luxury, but I understand what you're saying. Um, yeah, there's always this push and pull for us because we didn't, one of the things that we didn't want to do that was, you know, that, that's always an internal debate and struggle with us is, you know, we live in one of the top tourist destinations for um, New Zealand. And so everyone does tend to come through. So, but we don't really leverage off of that. We're not running, a, we, we made the conscious decision to not start a restaurant or a cafe and try to just sort of, um, you know, cast a net into the tourism river and just see, you know, what piles up off the tour bus and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And was um, some of that because you just didn't want to, I mean, was that just a, we're not these kind of people, this doesn't interest us. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was twofold. One is, is we did look at some other vineyards and wineries where we thought they were doing good work, but were struggling and I think one of the things that we saw, and, and this is typical of any business, and this is a big part where Mike's focus comes in, is that you know you were there was a lack of focus. They were doing too many varieties, too many different things. Uh, they had to spend a bunch of capital up front, but then you know then they started the restaurant to kind of keep going things until the wines kind of got going, and then by the time the wines eventually happened, there was all this focus and pressure on all these other things and sort of these noise and distractions, and so. 
you know, Mike's, Mike's, you know, one of the things that Mike always impressed, my father always impressed on me early on was, um, you know, you, you either want to be sort of a, you know, a low, a low cost commodity producer or, you know, the best in your class or a niche producer. And, and look, you can do lots of stuff in the middle, but it's very difficult because if you're in that middle part of the market, you better be very, very good at what you do and have a lot of resources because you're going to get chomped at from the top and chomped at from the bottom. So if you, at least if you're going to own the bottom or you're going to own the, te- or own the top, while those are, can be challenging positions in their own right, you also have a little bit less competition. You're not, you're sort of separating yourself from the herd. Yeah. And your competition is worthy competition. So I guess going back to this idea of, all right, you decided early on, and I mean, massive high five for what you were saying. And I wish I could just sort of bottle that and get my clients to hear that of whatever it is, you know, that middle space is so difficult. And we've seen that in the past two years where every brand has said, oh my God, we have to figure out a new way to message and communicate as a result of lockdown and COVID. Um, you made a conscious decision early on to position yourself at the very top of the market. Are you willing to talk a little bit, just like you asked your winemakers, about what were, you know, what are the pros? That's great. But what were some of the things that you never expected that kind of bit you in the ass building the business? Ooh. Um, I mean, there, yeah, I mean, with this sort of coded luxury thing, just to sort of touch a little bit on that, it, you know, again, is that. I mean, there is, it's always a constant, you know, debate and struggle because at the end of the day, we don't, you know, we weren't fabulously wealthy coming into this. We had enough capital to start it and kind of, you know, put down enough track and runway to get going, but it wasn't, you know, it's not like there's limitless cash reserves for us. We're a small family business. And there is always that, you know, debate of like, well, should we have done more? Should we have, have you know, been a little more traditional or run a cafe or restaurant, would that have helped leverage these things in, in revenue? So so we still talk about this today, right? So it's not a this is an ongoing discussion. I mean, there's those challenges in every business. I think the 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 cons are, you know, they're probably actually not that that unusual things to, to hear, which is that it, you know, it's taken much longer than we expected. Um, we actually managed to kind of get the wines off the ground and get the, the, the quality of the wines good right off the bat. I mean, our first, um, you know, we had a trial vintage in 04, but 2005 is really our first commercial release. And, um, you know, those were really well received by, by the critics, you know, from the get go. So we were fortunate in that respect. Um, but the, yeah, I think this, I mean, the things that I probably did not expect to be so difficult is um, securing talent, um, talented team and salespeople within New Zealand, I think in particular, that could get the idea and the concept of what we were trying to do and not fall back into the traditional things of, well, all right, let's let's find a, a you know, uh, let's find a wine agent or a distributor who's going to pick us up and run their margin, and we've got to go out, run around, market all the wines, and 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 not fall down to the pit hole, you know, pit, you know, the the pitfall of okay, well, it, it's not selling as quickly or as fastly as we want. So, all right, let's discount, let's drop the price, let's you know, do all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we always knew those things were a problem, but I'd say that they were certainly harder than I think we had anticipated. Um, the other thing that we did that in retrospect was, I think, a uh, a mistake in many ways is we knew the U.S. market and we had inroads in the U.S. market. So we were really we really teed ourselves up and focused on being an export wine uh, winemaker in New Zealand. We didn't 
think New Zealand would pay the prices that we were sort of looking at the time um, or that there would be a big enough market to support us. And, and so we really tried to focus on the U.S. And I think uh, the way that we went about that uh, was completely wrong. I, I would if I could go back and, and look at you know the money that we sort of invested early on and trying to break into the U.S. market, I, I would have I wish I could have all that money and all that wine back and, and, and do it a different way. Wow, that's interesting. I um I'd, I'd love to explore that more, but I actually just want to mention something that has to do with finding talent and you talking about the the challenges of New Zealand. Um to clarify for anyone listening, in New Zealand we have, you know, we have a tall poppy syndrome. We're a pretty egalitarian society. So that notion that we have, you know, all those years ago, someone who's running with a high ticket item, super luxury or super premium luxury. We are, we're not going to have that many people who are comfortable even voicing that message on behalf because that's, that's just out of the box for us. Yeah. Um, I mean, we copped a, look, we, we copped a lot of flack on, on why Hickey when we came in and said what we were going to do. And that kind of became, you know, that got into the local water supply. Um, uh, there were only a handful of of people that were supportive of us. Most of us were, I think, hoping for us to fail in some way. Um, it certainly didn't that's help that you were American. I mean, yes, and know. that was also yeah. absolutely a big part of it. Um, but there were others that were very supportive. You know, um, uh, uh, right from the get go. Um, uh, you know, uh, Steve White from from Stony Ridge. Um, I you know I met Steve pretty quickly, and but Steve was one hundred percent supportive of the idea. He was not somebody he you know his his he is one of those guys that got it right away, which was that you know a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, and so I was always very appreciative of that. Um, and twenty years ago, they were they were the top of the heap. Yeah, That's right. that was my first very expensive bottle of New Zealand wine all those years ago. I remember that. Yeah, that's right. And and at this point, it would be Stony Ridge and 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 Destiny Bay are still sort of you know sitting in terms of probably at the top of the heap in terms of you know reputation and recognition. I think on you know why Hickey for Cabernet blends and for and we sit in that sort of both in that space of you know very you know uh, you know sort of unique small production you know. Uh, 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 vintners kind of um, owning your space too. I mean, like yeah. that's a really big thing. Is it yeah. really owning what what you do and not um, being pushed out of that, as you say, by retailers, distributors, marketers, communicators, all of those of us who want to jump in and say, "Have you tried something different?" Um, yeah. So being very grounded in that. So. For the brand, like if, if you go to the Destiny Bay site, it says right off the bat, we're not open to the public, we sell to collectors. How do you, um, to ask a difficult question, how do you balance you being a very warm, welcoming, inclusive human being with sort of the exclusive nature of how you sell your wine, which is ideally you're going to be referred in, send us an email, you know, we'll add you to the waiting list. Um, there's not enough to go around. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, it's a little bit of a challenge for me. Um, I'm probably, you know, my father and I are, you know, we, we, I think we operate as a good yin and yang and sort of check on each other because I might, I might drift too far off the path without him. And, uh, you know, he might push things to, you know, a standpoint that it become, you know, too off putting or too, you know, you know, 
too hard to get the to. two so, of you bring balance to the force uh, we, we try to um but you know there's you know that's uh you know there's there's always lots of uh spirited debate um around these topics um and so yeah it's it is a challenging thing um we want people to find us but we also don't want to look like we're you know just the other you know just the other place that you can get into and that's part of it is you know the cost structure and now now that we've sort of had time and honed into it you know look stealing the ideas from uh from bordeaux with on Permu and stuff like that i think was you know and 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 also with you know sort of subscription wine models out of out of the u.s looking at you know the likes of you know screaming eagles or schaefer or something like that where you're trying to you know you're trying to keep your production relatively limited and, and service a direct customer base um that that's something we didn't you know we looked at initially but it took us a while to kind of figure out how to hone that and take that in the right direction and it's been much more successful than um and, and it's been successful in, in markets in ways that i think we didn't expect um, you know, it's been very successful here in New Zealand. That was, uh, you know, and, and that's sort of going back to my point about saying that I, you know, that we kind of, we incorrectly, um, assessed the New Zealand market, I think, and didn't, you know, we, we kind of brushed it off for a little while and didn't think people were going to collect and buy our wines in the way that they do. And, and we have a, a very robust and loyal, um, patron club, which is our sort of version of the Ampermu um, program, um, that are, you know, loyal members buying, you know, significant purchases per, you know, for personal consumption each and every year, year over year over year. Wow. So I, I guess I would not have anticipated that either, that New Zealand is a stronghold for consumer behavior for the brand. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, our prices are, you know, certainly, um, by New Zealand standards are pretty far up there in the stratosphere. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's a lot more attractive in a non, you know, in a patron club thing. Cause you're not paying that fully loaded retail price as if you were getting it, you know, at, you know, picking it up at say a duty free, you know, on the way out of New Zealand right. at the airport. Um, when that was a thing. Um, <laughs> so, so, um, we started talking about markets. All right. So you talked about the American market. You talked about the New Zealand market. Who are your strong markets? Do you, and, and let's just, let's go there now. The reason that I wanted to talk to you is you are on the plus now. That is right. That is, uh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think we're the first one from New Zealand. Um, I don't maybe yeah. Felton, maybe Felton Road, maybe I don't know, but not to my knowledge. I don't I'm think not, Felton Road's on it. Okay, no, um, I, I don't think they've done that. Yeah, that's something that's been yeah. we've been in discussion with for several months. Uh, we got, uh, uh, and I'll, I'll be honest, I can't, I'm not actually quite sure how this evolved because I uh, we've got Tom Morton, who's been our um, uh, sort of sales uh, you know director and 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 con, you know he's part of the team and is uh, you know sort of a, a consultant you know consulting member of the team. Uh, so I can't recall exactly how this emerged. Um, it was something that Tom sort of surfaced and it was, uh, the, it's a, uh, 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 organization over in Australia that's, uh, affiliated with, uh, Andrew, um, Kayard. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing mm -hmm. that correctly. Um, master of wine. And, uh, so we've did some virtual tastings with Andrew. Um, he was, you know, quite thrilled and quite excited with the wines. And, you know, we weren't looking at just new release. We were looking at stuff, you know, far back as, uh, the 2010 destiny. Um, and, uh, yes, yeah, so we are, we are with them. They're called international first growth and they've got a, a handful of wineries and, and we're 
we're with them, uh, uh, and they are out actively right now, um, meeting with negotiants uh, in Europe, and um, you know, moving the ball forward with that. It's a little bit. It's been a little bit of a stutter start, only because of everybody getting COVID and Omicron waves and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, that is that is a, a pretty exciting thing. So they're they're you know we're reserving distribution um, of Magna Premia now, aside from through our patron club. Um, with Laplace, um, you know, we may look at some of the other, the other blends, but yeah, yeah, that's a pretty interesting and exciting new development. You're so calm about it. Whereas I, I'm so excited for you. And I'm also so excited because this is a great thing for New Zealand, you know, like to have our tiny little winemaking country have, um, have you guys on the pass is fabulous. Uh, so along with that, China, Still a big market for you? Sort of what's China. happened there? Yeah, China's, um, I mean, that, so after we had been here for a couple of years and and uh, my former um, sales director who I first hired and when I was talking about talent, he was the first one to kind of get on board, Brett Taylor. Um, and Brett was uh, South Africa, was uh, from Zimbabwe um, and he had worked in fine wine here. And we that's how I kind of came across him. He joined the team and... Uh, we were looking at, you know, the U.S. market was. We didn't. Uh, the thing that we we kind of missed about the U.S. market, particularly in California and particularly in the Bay Area, and this is, I think, the thing that we really missed the mark on, was how fiercely Napa loyal the Bay Area wine collectors are, by and large. And so, if they're going to spend money on a top wine, they just they want to buy Napa. They want to support Napa, right? And it, and we see the same. I, and and now that I've kind of realized this, I see the same thing everywhere. You go to Martinborough, and and if you're in Wellington, everybody's buying. Right? You go to Queenstown, everyone's drinking, you know, Pinot and trying to buy Pinot, and and they're not selling that much Cabernet blends. They sell some and, and do stuff, but I mean, I mean, you know, the lion's share of it is 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 this sort of local support, either from the tourists who want to drink from the region or from the locals who want to keep money within their own sort of you know local thing or and, and it's pride. what we're used to i and, mean and some pride. of it is also just comfort I think there's a lot of yeah comfort yeah. i think there's a lot of pride too um yeah. you know in these regions like queenstown which is you know and and, and central which has built a you know a tremendous reputation for pinot noir mm. so there's i i think i think actually it's it's a fierce sense of local pride so we focus in the san francisco market and i realize now that that was a real mistake um when you know we probably would have been far better suited to actually look at like Los Angeles or, you know, some of these other markets that are actually where they're um, removed from. Yeah. That don't a, have a wine that, growing, that, right. A staunch wine growing. Region. So one, to answer your question, once we sort of looked at that and kind of realized we had, had, you know, misunderstood some of these, these key drivers or behaviors of, of, you know, the, the active wine consumer portion of, of, of a given market, you know, there's, there's, you got the casual stuff, you got the people who, but who are in it, um, yeah. you know, and are buying a lot and, you know, day over day, week over week. Um, and then we started looking at kind of what was happening in China at the time. And I want to say this is probably 2010. And we felt that everybody was making the same mistake that we had with these other markets, except with China. And the thing that we're hearing by and large, and I was talking with other, you know, fairly significant producers, some who, some who I won't name names, but people would consider to be 
competitors of ours, so to speak, and asking them, what do they think about? Are they going to engage in China? And everybody said, yeah, now it's the, the market's not mature enough. It's they're, they're too new to the wine world. It's not, wow. you know, we're going to, we're going to wait and hold off on that. And this is to, to pat, not to pat myself on, on the back. The one thing that I had become acutely aware of in the late, uh, late nineties and early two thousands before I came here. Cause I was actually working in technology and living in the San Francisco Bay area in Silicon Valley. So I was watching things move at, at sort of light speed there. Um, is that I was very much of the opinion that, that China was going to mature as a wine market and any of these new sort of emergent wine markets were probably going to, uh, the consumer base was going to mature much faster than anybody had ever thought before because of the internet, because of things. I mean, this mm-hmm. is even pre-social media. And, and now you throw social media onto it, which is, you know, for better or worse, is, is, is a huge catalyst for a lot of things. Um, and, you know, and democratizes, you know, access and marketing in a way that, that simply didn't exist before. And so you find, you know, people are getting access to tasting notes and events and engagement in a way that they didn't before. And I think the Chinese market um, moved very quickly. And so we were lucky to get, we, we said, no, well, look, we're going to divert some product over there and take a look at this and, and think that this might be an opportunity. We saw that they were starting to look at, at Bordeaux and buying wines up there, but looking further afield. And that allowed us to get a foothold in that market for the tiny size that we are and recognition as a brand far greater than wineries that are 10 to 20 times our size. And, and I know for a fact that, that these other wineries were exporting little to nothing over there when we were, we were shipping wine. And so that really gave us a jumpstart over it. So we had people showing, starting to show up at the winery of coming in from China with old tattered brochures that looked like they had been passed down through three generations of people, you know, sort of wow. showing up at our doorstep saying, you're the most famous, you know, uh, your most famous wine, you know, one of the most famous wine brands or, or red wine brands we know in China, you have this, you know, great reputation in China. And, uh, you know, how do we get your wines? And so we just, you know, continued to to support and expand that. And so, you know, we've certainly done a, a substantial amount of business into China, um, you know, these last, uh, you know, this, this last 10 years. Did you have any concerns about your wine being counterfeited? Was this ever a thing that you had to worry about? Uh, we always keep an eye on it. Um, I am kind of almost in a way, gleefully waiting for the moment to start seeing evidence of us being counterfeited. Because that's kind of yeah. a sign that you have really reached a, a point here you've where arrived. You're, you've arrived, right? Like you're now you've worthy arrived. of being of counterfeited. Uh, we sort of circumvent around that. We had a lot of discussion. We talked about, oh gosh, do we need to start employing, um, you know, uh, serialization, tracking systems? You know, we've been looking, I've been looking at that technology. Auto authorization. Auto authorization. All that kind of stuff. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's largely an issue that you worry about more in Asian markets than you do mm. in, uh, say, you certainly is not a huge issue in the U.S. Um, it's, it's present in Europe and the U.S., but not, I think, to the degree that you see it in in some Asian countries. Uh, they, what we in our discussions with our clients in in China, in particular, is what is most important is not necessarily a um, you know a barcode or an authorization system. It is the authenticity and the provenance of the wine and how it got to the customer. 
And that's what they tend to focus on is they want to know how did it actually get there? They aren't even all that um, consumed or concerned with the counterfeit issue if they know they're getting it from a reliable source. It's when you go to buy it from an unknown source um, that, that that you run a, a risk of, you know, what's the provenance of it? What's the, you know, the chain of custody, you know, has it been handled properly? And this is where Destiny Bay, again, sort of being kind of unique, I, I think, still in New Zealand, where we do not, you know, we, we manage everything from the vine to the bottle to the customer's door. Um, the whole way we are fully vertically integrated in that. So, I mean, somebody could, without even doing a bottle authentication system, somebody could come in and tell me that they bought a wine from so-and-so or somewhere. And I could probably trace it back just about to the very vine and block that it came from um, the whole way. So we're able to kind of confront that. And I think that's the thing that means a lot to people. And and that's also very consistent with the wine industry historically, right? Like, I mean, we talk, we always talk about fine wine when you talk about, you know, the provenance and the authenticity of the wine. So that's how we, I think, um, address that now. So I skipped over your accolades. Um, New Zealand's favorite MW, Rebecca Gibb, wrote quite a lovely article about you this year. You were Bob Campbell's Winery of the Year for 2021. Is that correct? That is correct. Yep. Do you rely on those kind of accolades to build the brand? Like, has that been part of your growth strategy is that you are going to be, um, I don't, I don't want to say awards or ratings focused, but that you were going to say by producing a great wine, we're going to put it into the hands of the experts and let them do the messaging for us. Um, I think we've always viewed, um, you know, if you, if you, if you live, I think the concern we have, and I, this may be true or may not, but if, if you sort of, if you live by the critic and live by the, the, the you know, the, the gold star award, you, you may also die by it. Um, so I, mm. I see those things. We always view those things as, um, you know, they're, they are helpful. They are, but they don't, I, I, I don't really believe that critic scores and reviews carry the weight that they do or have the impact on the market that they did 20 or particularly 30 years ago. Not even for a wine at your level? I I don't think so. I think it's just a box that needs to be ticked. I think when they're looking for, I think when people are looking for those things, they want to know, especially if you're spending a lot of money on a wine, if you're going to buy DRC, if you're going to buy, you know, anything that's, you know, hundreds of, if not thousands of, of dollars per bottle. Um, not everybody who consumes is a wine expert or wine critic and, and they want to feel okay and say, well, I look, I, I think this, and they may not have the opportunity to try it. I mean, you can't just go in and have a taste of DRC before you buy, you know, it's not a try before you right. buy situation, right? So you've got to rely on, on somebody to, that you've got some confidence in to say, okay, well, I want to buy that, but I'm not buying, I don't think you're buying DRC because it got X score on it unless you're playing the you know the the wine investment you know wine Mm. is a wine you know is an investment vehicle which is a totally different thing right like that's a completely different thing that we're talking about if if we're looking trying to make money on wine by buying and reselling it right is but is destiny bay an investment wine absolutely it is uh i would hope so um yeah yeah i would hope so and 
you know, it, it's a little hard to say because we don't have a super robust, you know, uh, secondary market at the moment, at least abroad. And then with New Zealand, as you say, it's, it's too small of a market to have a really meaningful ones. The problem we have mm. is we don't see much happen in the secondary market. We see a little bit of stuff pop up on seller tracker and some some wine movement around the place a little bit. Um, but um, frankly, most of the people are consuming or most of our customers are just consuming the wine um, or it's staying in their cellars. So, you know, I guess that's uh, that's a story yet to be told. Um, that's not a bad thing, though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not a bad thing that they're hanging I, on. I, 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 this is a personal thing, and, and Mike, my father, probably disagree with me violently on this one. But you know, I mean, my, my inspiration for making wine, what kit, what gets me up and gets me into the winery, is not to make a wine that somebody is going to buy and resell later to make a buck off of. That's that that is. I, it's great if they do it. But that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't impassion me. That doesn't make me want to work harder to make the wine. I want to make the wines great because I want to make the wines great. So the people, when they have taken the time, gotten hold of the wines, taken the care to sell them, that they, that they have, you know, an experience with the wine itself. That's meaningful to them. They love the wine. Right. Right. That's, that's what's meaningful to me. Um, so yeah, the secondary market is, it is an interesting thing to sort of think about. Um, but back to the critic scores and, and to what you were saying, which is that, um, they are very helpful, but we, you know, I think we've done one competition. I think we did a comp, we submitted to, we submitted to a, like a decanter competition years ago and, and, and we'll really never do something like that again because they're very, competitions are, are the wines that win are good, but so many are left by the wayside because of just the nature and structure of how competitions are run. There's so many wines, so many critics, so many tastings, palate fatigue, you know, palate crossover. There's all these kind of factors that that kind sure. of make that make um, winning a competition. It doesn't mean that the people who win the competitions are not good wines. They are. They're very, very good. But there is a there is definitely a randomness that uh, that occurs there. Whereas working with critics like Rebecca Gibb, Bob Campbell, you know, Joseph Swinsky, you know, any of the, you know, um, you know, these people are tasting not in, okay, I've got a two day competition and I got to get through 300 wines in the next, Mm. you know, 48 hours. They, they're getting through a massive amount of wines, but they've got a, you know, a, a support team, you know, they have people helping them. They've got a schedule. Okay. I'm going to taste this number of wines this day, this number of wines this day, they're tasting day in and day out. So they're spending and interacting with the wines, I, I think in a much more different and personal way than what happens under the time constrained pressure of a, uh, of a, of an awards competition where it's got to happen and it's got to happen at this time. Um, so People who can engage with it, engage with the story, and engage the wines in a personal way, those are the ones we want to work with, and they help, I think, give support and confidence. We do see some sales upticks and stuff like that, but it's not like – unless you get 99 out of 100, 100 out of 100, you know, or some something that is really, really remarkable, um, you know, you aren't going to have a run on the winery – and all of a sudden be sell out a vintage overnight. And, and there were stories of that. I don't know if they're urban legend or not, but I, I believe that they were true, you know, in the early days of say when Parker was at the height of the wine game and Parker gave something, you know, I, I mean, Parker would give a wine in 95 and the wineries back in the day would have, you know, a huge surge in demand. Now you get a 95, nobody cares. Um, I want to go back to something that is, that I noticed when I was doing my research on the website that I thought was really interesting. Um, you guys come 
come from a science background and I do know you personally, I, I you know, and so I know some of your ethos. Uh, you state unequiv- unequivocally on the site that you are sustainable, you are not organic, and you talk about that. Um, I'd like to discuss some of your approach to sustainability and what you think your responsibility is, and really in saying that, the tacit judgment of what are the responsibilities for fine wine or you know luxury or premium producers. So let's start with the science. Why no organic? Um, well, this will, this might be a polarizing thing for some of your viewers. We'll see. Um, organic is uh, at its simplest level. Organic does not mean chemical free. First of all, and I think that that's what a large part of the consumer market believes. So, if you buy an organic wine, it's been sprayed, unless you are living in a very, very fortunate place in the world. Uh, you know, you'd have to be. You know, uh, there's some certain parts of Chile and things like that where they've just got you know so low humidity and and such you know perfect conditions that disease pressure is is nil to non-existent. Um, but you're gonna be you know you're gonna be probably putting lots of sulfur on and you're gonna be putting and probably copper. And if you're organic, you're gonna be using copper sprays. Now copper is um, is organic and it is allowed, but copper is also a heavy metal. And that can toxify your soil. It can get into the wines. It can, and that, and you know, that can even get your wine banned uh, going into Germany, who is you know very diligent about testing about um, you know actually running chemical analysis on on wines that get imported there on a, in a random way. So, um, yeah, organic is not what everybody organic thinks. So if we kind of sort of peel back from the idea from there's an idea and an ethos behind organic that is is very attractive and appealing. But when you look at sort of if we if we're just very hard nosed about the science of it, sustainability actually really suits that almost in a way that's even better. Because if you're sustainable, and you're willing to accept that there are some things that that science and and industry has innovated that are in fact better and safer to use for the environment than their or quote organic counterpart, um, then you are making a choice based on facts that suggests that this is something that is going to be more sustainable and better for the environment. And so, you know, a healthy, happy, you know, grape environment makes for healthy, happy waterways and local, you know, wildlife and, um, and, and makes for financial sustainability, you know, which I think is part of the sustainability discussion that we tend to gloss over. Well, but, sure. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to take, I mean, you're, you're also taking some huge risks financially, right? If you're trying to just sort of say, well, look, you know, we'll just let the grapes do and and let Mother Nature do what it does, and if it is, you know, you might run the risk of significant disease, pressure, crop loss, quality loss. Uh, I think for me, that would be the big that that would be the bigger concern. I can I can handle some crop loss. I can handle losing and having small vintages. Um, I can't handle, and the brand can't survive handling low quality. I know that a lot of this probably comes from a science background, but as wineries, and especially as, you know, your single vineyard, small production winery, you are very much at the mercy of what's happening with climate change. How much have you seen that impact Destiny Bay over, you know, say the past five to 10 years? Okay. Um, So sadly, at the moment, it's working in our favor. Um, but that, you know, overall, that's not a good thing. With the warming of the old world? Yeah. Um, so what yeah. we're seeing is, um, uh, 
you know, so yes, we have seen, if, if I go back, we are now harvesting a full month earlier. Every, the entire vintage season has now the last, and it started to really emerge in, we saw the trend emerge in 2016, which was a smaller production year for us, a wetter vintage. And then we had another and then in 2017, it was so wet that we lost everything. Well, we actually had some stuff, but, we, but it was not of a quality that met our standards. So we literally cut off, cut and dropped off every single grape on the ground. Um, so that was a total loss. Now, that wasn't a loss because it was cold and it was, it was because it was wet. And the reason it was wet is because it was hot. And that's why it was so wet. Um, and that's, you know, and so that's what's happening, you know, and I, I won't go into, uh, what I've learned as an amateur meteorologist, but there's a lot when you start to look at weather systems in the South Pacific and Fiji and Australia, New Zealand, that tell you a lot about how these, these climate models emerge. One of the things that they basically forecast, um, was that, uh, NIWA, um, here in New Zealand, which is, uh, uh you know, the, the responsible sort of the scientific weather data, amongst other things, um, you know, it issued a lot of these forecasts um, for the wine industry. And they, they forecast these, um, you know, a period of, of wetter, increasing wet seasons in the North Island. And then as it got worse, sort of they were forecasting out to sort of 2030, that it would then be much more drier and much more droughts uh, as the, that wet weather would be falling further and further east of New Zealand. Now, what we're seeing happen right now, and the trend appears to be, is that that appears to be happening about five to seven years earlier than what even the NIWA forecasts are, at least if we use the last four to five years as, as a measure for it. So, so what we're finding now is, yeah, we had, uh, in so 17 was wet cause loss 18 was also very warm um, but again a difficult vintage but 19 20 21 and 22 four years in a row bud burst has been increasingly earlier each year which then brings the whole vintage window backwards and what we're also finding is that a lot of the weather is now that was hitting us in the north island is 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 now missing us many times often skirting further off to the east and so we're actually seeing drought conditions. Um, so we ended up, we never harvested until 2014 was the earliest Cabernet harvest we had ever had. I think we harvested on like the fourth or we were done on like the fourth, fifth or sixth of, of April. Um, this past year, we were done harvesting all of our Cabernet on the 17th of March. Now that's holy shit. And this is not a question of it being unripe. I mean, that like I, I was nervous bringing it in then I was actually trying to figure out like, gosh, I was kind of, I was actually like, boy, I hope it gets cloudy. I hope it maybe, maybe just a little bit of rain, something to kind of just slow things down because we often talk about hang time, right? And, and hang time's a big thing, especially with Cabernet, right? And, and ripeness. And, and so there was this fear because we're now sort of dealing with an environment that we've never seen before here. So we're, you know, everything I knew about the way our vineyard behaves and responds and how do we grow and get peak ripeness and all that stuff. I'm having to take that whole book and throw it out the window now. And, and really rethink how we're looking at the viticultural side of thing. And then obviously also that's having impacts on the winemaking side. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we had earliest bud burst ever in, in, uh, the, the 2022 season, which started in, in, you know, 2021 earliest, you know, we, we had a compression where we had our, um, you know, normally there'd be about two to three weeks between, say, the first varietal and the last varietal, say, between, you know, Malbec and Cabernet. I mean, the entire vintage harvest window this year was about 10 days apart. Um, you know, so it was, um, 
so it's, yeah, it, it's, it's very interesting. We're having to take a real hard look at what we're doing in the vineyard and how we manage the vineyard to do this stuff. Cause we had sort of geared the vineyard also in a lot of ways to support previous conditions in terms of, you know, kilometers of subterranean drainage and when do we, you know, you know, uh, uh, lots of other sort of, you know, viticultural minutiae. Um, and so we're having to take a look at that, but it, it's not for lack of ripeness. I mean, the wines are fantastically ripe. I mean, that's, you know, you got the harvest in, you are just getting started on the plus. Mm-hmm. All right. What's the next year look like for destiny Bay? Well, um, you know, we've got the, uh, I've just been writing all my tasting notes this last week on the 2020 wines. Um, and those oh, can I are- interrupt to say you have awesome tasting notes. I was oh. looking at them on the site where you've got the tasting notes and then you've got the month by month breakdown of the, the vintage summary. Yeah. Some the season of, summary. Yeah. 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 And I love that because I, you know, I look at, I look at text sheets so often and I'm like, yeah, so te- you know, like, what is it? And I was looking at yours and I was like, oh, these are quite nice. Cause they're very personal. They're kind of story driven. And then you have this breakdown that's like, right. If you are geeky enough that you're going to read it, I'm going to give you the full geek experience. Here you go. Yeah. I mean, we're sometimes honest to a fault with that stuff. Um, you know, you, the, the traditional thing is you talk to a winemaker and every year is the most uh, is the most amazing year in vintage ever. And if you read those vintage summaries, you will get the you will get the story and the tale of of the, the, the terror and fear which which with which we had to survive a given vintage. Um, and uh, that's you know, good storytelling. Yeah, well, it is. You know, I did, I do, I did get a degree in theater, so there, there's at mm. least I get, I get, I do get to use those acting skills and, and the storytelling, my my penchant for storytelling for at a certain point. Um, yeah, those things are. I actually had. Uh, uh, I I don't know if they still do it, but I know that uh, Lisa Parati Brown was was using my tasting notes or my vintage summary notes uh, for some of their vintage reports back in the day, and they, they that they found it quite handy because we do get pretty pretty specific and detailed on those vintage summaries. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So thank you. It's nice to know that, that somebody is reading them, enjoys them. I actually put a lot of time into them. Um, uh, so yeah, I just finished and, and I'm waiting for the team to review the, my draft of the 2020 notes um, and see if they approve of what I'm going to say, because this vintage is looking quite different. It, it, this, and this kind of comes back to this climate change and stuff like that. Like the wines are different now. They, this wine, these wines are, they're still destiny Bay wines, but there is some qualities and characters that, that even I'm tasting in these wines that are, you know, quite different than prior vintages. Um, and so I'm, I'm very, uh, you know, curious and interested to see, I think they're, um, I think for our devout destiny Bay followers, I think some of them, I don't know, I'll see how they like them. Maybe some of them may not like, uh, like these one, these wines as much as they have in previous ones. I think these wines are going to take a little more time in the cellar to, to evolve because they're just, uh, they're, they're becoming quite, they're, they're showing a, a level, uh, of tannin structure and profile that that is something that is now starting to emerge with i think largely climate change that we haven't seen before so it's how do we mm-hmm. adapt the wines and and you know we can't just keep making the wines in the exact same style and the exact same way if we're seeing such draft drastically different um vintage conditions so but i think sure. the wines are looking really i also think these wines are going to be i think it's i think some people are going to be really really blown away by these 20s as well so Thank you, Sean. I appreciate you giving me an hour of your time. I wish that you weren't so far away. I know.
Well, hopefully I'll find a way to make it to, uh, to, to Spain. That is definitely, if I make it to Europe, that is definitely on the list is to come see you and Keith. So. hundred percent. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. And a great big thank you to my friend, Sean Spratt for joining me today. The Italian wine podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitali Academy, home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at vinitaliinternational.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com. Hi, guys. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.